Blog Talk Radio. Uh oh, guess what day it is? Julie. Huh? Julie. Huh? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? <laughs> Anybody? Anybody? Mike, 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 Mike. Huh? What day is it, Mike? Huh? Woohoo! Listen, guess what today is? Listen, guess what today is? It's hump day. Hump day! Woohoo! <laughs> it's hump day. Hump day! Woohoo! <laughs> yeah, ladies and gentlemen, it's hump day here in the Donaldson Files. Here on the Bachelor News Radio Network, and as you well know, Wednesday is Resistance Wednesday. Now, that's where Dr. Larry and I begin the resistance. And since we're now one week into Biden's America, uh, you know, I thought I'd bring on a good a, a gentleman who I actually got to be very become good friends with. Uh, you know, before that. Like many viewers, I would see this gentleman on Fox News. I would see him on uh, you know, various publications, including National Review. What I did realize is that he, like myself, uh, was a political operative. He runs uh, grapes, he works with Grapeseed Media. As well, everybody knows I run America's PAC, and I'm the project director of America's Majority Foundation. And, and while I'm at it, I'll advertise the fact that I wrote the book Rise of National Populism and Democratic Socialism three years ago, kind of predicting the rise of democratic socialism into the modern-day Democratic Party. Also be joining us will be Dr. Larry Fedora. So Delroy Murdoch is the gentleman I'm talking about, and for uh, full disclosure, Delroy and I actually worked together in this campaign. Um, uh, he, through Grapeseed Media, he does a lot of the social media for uh, working for America's PAC, so we appreciate its efforts, its work. And so, Delroy, is there anything else uh, you want people to know about? Uh, Tom, Delroy Murdoch here. Very happy to be on air with you. Much appreciated. And uh, uh, as you say, it's one week into the Biden administration, and we just said uh, before we got on air here that I'm not surprised to see he's turned out to be as left-wing as he is. I told everyone he's not a moderate. There's nothing moderate about this guy. This guy's a left-winger. What he is, what I have seen, uh, is he's uh, in a hurry. He's done a whole lot of stuff much more quickly than I thought he would. And I guess he, whatever energy he has, he puts him into signing some executive orders and maybe just goes to sleep after that. But boy, he sure gets a lot done while he sits down at those tables and signs, uh, I think it's up to about 40 executive orders already. Unbelievable. Uh, well, you're absolutely. I mean, it, I'm not surprised, to be honest with you. You're not surprised. Dr. Larry, are you surprised? Nope. I think they were all set for this. Yeah, it's not like the the warning signs were not there. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to be honest with you. I think it's time for some of these never Trumpers to start apologizing for this. I totally agree with you. Yeah, it's not too early. Uh, and I always, I told people all throughout the campaign. I said this over and over and over. I even said it back in 2016. Focus on public policy. I know so many people who said, "Oh, Trump is too loud. I don't like his hair." You know, oh, he's just abrasive, blah, blah, blah. And and Biden's nice. He seems friendly. I said, look, we're not here to elect a national drinking buddy or national yeah. best friend or national shoulder on which we can cry if we're upset. We're here to pick somebody 
to run the federal government, the executive branch in particular, and implement policies that will keep this country free and prosperous and safe, period. If you want a best friend, call your best friend up and go have a drink somewhere. Don't expect that best friend to be sitting behind the Resolute Desk in the Oval Office. And I really wish this will be a lesson to voters to evaluate candidates on public policy, not on whether there'll be fun people with whom you can, uh, you know, have a Budweiser or an Anchor Steam uh, after work. That's really not the purpose of selecting candidates for public office. Well, yeah, it's, a, it's a good, yeah. Here, go ahead, Larry. I was just going to say I had a story about that that I was telling during the campaign about the squirrel, squirrels in the basement. Did you ever hear that? The uh, one guy, a guy uh, was a homeowner, and he had his house in order, and all, they went away on vacation. They came back, and they found out they had squirrels in the basement, and he didn't know how to get rid of them, so he called the city, and they said, no, we don't do that, and he called the exterminator, and he said, no, we don't handle uh, live animals. And uh, then some guy told him, well, there's this guy down the street that uh, – he doesn't. Uh, he might uh, take a drink or two, and he might not be the cleanest guy you know. But boy, he knows how to get rid of squirrels. So they uh, gave him a test, and by God, he got rid of the squirrels. And that's uh, so. That's who they hired. And I said, well, if uh, if his name was Trump, that's uh, that's one good way to think about how we're uh, how we're hiring the the guy to take care of the swamp. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. <laughs> well, you know, here's the thing. I mean, first of all, number one, I gotta say this. I don't think Joe Biden's a good guy. Uh, I really, this is a guy who spent his entire career enriching himself and his family while in the public office. He may have, you know, he may have passed the legal test, but it's certainly not the ethical test. Uh, this is a guy. You know, we, we all know that his first wife was killed in a car accident. Along with one of his child, one of his children, but he spent the next several years basically telling everybody that the driver of the other car was a drunkard. As it turns out, he was only not only not drunk, but he was also, you know, not at fault in the accident. And I always thought to myself, you know, this shows you character. I mean, he didn't need. To lie and misrepresent this this story or embellish it, he can simply say, "I was a single dad, I had to deal with this issue, and that and leave it at that." It's a tragedy, but to add the lies to it, and to me, the unforgivable sin that both Biden and Obama should be exonerated for the rest of their lives is lying about the Russian collusion hoax and allowing this to continue. All they had to do after the election. In 2016, says we have no evidence this occurred. We're moving on. Had they done yep. that, we would have we would have had a different four years. They did. You're absolutely, you're absolutely right about that. Look, if they're they are liberal Democrats, and they could have fought uh, President Trump on policy and said, look, you know, we we think the uh, global warming is a real problem. We've got to fight this. Um, we believe that engagement with Iran is better than confrontation. Um, taxes are already too low on the rich. I don't agree with these comments, but they do. And then fight the man on public policy and, and explain why their ideas are better ideas and why Trump's policies were not. 
Um, but they couldn't do that. They had to invent this story about him being a, a KGB agent and under, under control of the Kremlin, um, even though this is the man <clears throat> who sent Javelin anti-tank missiles to Ukraine to blow up Russian uh, tanks under control of Putin, uh, made America energy independent, which is not good for Russia, um, urged Angela Merkel of Germany to, to uh, uh, stop the uh, Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which would bring in uh, Russian uh, natural gas and instead buy American natural gas, uh, liquefied natural gas. This is not the behavior of a Russian puppet, at least not a good Russian puppet. And yet they had to invent this story. We all spent three years completely obsessed over uh, Donald uh, Trump, KGB agent. And then it turns out uh, the Senate and House Intelligence, Intelligence Committees, the FBI, and the Mueller report said, nope, not true, nothing there. What an enormous waste of national energy, focus, and goodwill. What a disaster. No, it wasn't. Yeah. Larry, you got anything to add? I'm just wondering. I've always been always wondered why, how, how, how can you get people to hate so much? I mean, they just they just hate it. It was all. I mean, it still is. I mean, that's what they're still they're still working on that in uh, in this current uh, uh, fiasco of uh, trying to impeach a person who's already left uh, left office. But where where does all this hate come from? I mean, I you know we've had we've had people in the uh, political uh, rivals ever since the beginning of the uh, of the uh, republic. But it's, this this is this really is beyond the pale. I think it goes well beyond yeah. anything I've seen. I've been writing about politics since uh, the days of Jimmy Carter, and it's not unusual for people, uh, Democrats, not to like Republicans or vice versa, but never until the advent of Donald J. Trump did I see uh, what I call assassination chic, where people who wouldn't just say, look, we don't like the guy, we want him out of power, we're going to fight against him. They fantasized about the assassination of the President of the United States. You had Madonna the day after he was inaugurated saying, uh, uh, I'm dreaming about blowing up the White House. You had actor Johnny Depp saying, uh, boy, it's been a long time since an actor shot a president. You had a woman here in New York City, he's a Broadway actress, and she said, uh, where's John Wilkes Booth when we need him? Uh, you may recall Kathy Griffin, the woman who uh, does that, or used to, used to do the um, New Year's Eve uh, broadcast with Anderson yeah, Cooper on CNN, with that chopped off, that mock-up of, a, of Trump's chopped off head with blood dripping out of the bottom. I mean, this is not, nothing I've seen before. And that goes no time under eight years of Obama when we fought that guy and everything. Did I even once, even privately, hear anybody saying, gosh, if we could just chop his head off? Not one time did I hear or see anything like that. Well, hold on, well, that, this is Tom Dyer. How do you yeah, hold on. That? But Larry, I'll tell you what, Larry, let's ask that question right after this uh, brief announcement from the Bachelor News Radio Network. I'm Tom Donaldson with Delroy Murdoch and Dr. Larry. Here on the Donaldson Wednesday Resistance Hour. Donaldson Files Resistance Hour. <laughs> if you want real discussions on politics, social issues, racial issues, and other topics, then tune into the Bachelor News Radio Show. Listen live every Monday and Thursday from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com. And if you miss the show, you can listen every Monday through Saturday at 8 a.m. and 3 p.m. Eastern and every Sunday at 5 a.m. and 3 p.m. at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. Listen and be informed. Join Barry Barnes for Locker Talk on the Bachelor Pad Network as he presents NFL news and evaluates players. 
Fridays at 9 a.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com. You can get all these great shows on the Bachelor News Radio Network at uh, .com, the Bachelor News Radio Network .com. You can go on the website, the new website. You get all these great shows, and and I guess if you want to hear the opposite side, uh, you can listen to the Bachelor News Radio Show. And if you want to listen to the correct side, just stay here. Uh, and uh, this is again, you call in six four six nine two nine zero one three zero six four six. Nine two nine zero one three zero. If you got any questions for Delroy, myself, or Dr. Larry, or you just want to call and say, Tom, you're the greatest. You know, we even take congratulations. <laughs> yeah, we even take those calls. So, all right, that's a good question that Dr. Larry. Now, you've been writing since the uh, God. I didn't realize you've been writing since that long, uh, Delroy. That's a oh, geez, I've been uh, writing. Op-ed pieces since uh, I was the editor-in-chief of the uh, Tideline at Palisades. Sorry, at uh, Paul Revere Junior High School in Los Angeles. That was, I think, I started doing that uh, September 1978. So I've been doing this for uh, what is that coming up on 43 yeah. years now, something like this. And yeah, I actually, yeah. I actually won won an award for best uh, uh, editorial writing uh, among uh, junior high school kids. I think it was across all of LA school district, and that was in ninth grade. So yeah, I've been an award-winning opinion journalist since uh, since ninth grade, since 1979. So I've been doing this a long time. Oh, okay. I, I just say I, for a second, I all right. That sounds good. Well, I, I guess for you know, I just say you don't look, you know, you're, you know, you certainly don't not look like somebody who's been writing about this for four plus decades. Oh, thank you. I'm so much older than I look. <laughs> <laughs> But okay, let's answer that question, of Dr. Larry Post. Why is there so much hate? What changed over the past two or three decades where we got to this point? Well, certainly it was it had a moral dimension to it. You know, it wasn't that 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 just that they didn't like his hair. They thought he was evil, and they thought anybody that and they still do think that anybody that was uh, listening to him and and following him was evil. It wasn't just that they were wrong. It was they were immoral. Now, where in the, and where did, you know, I, I mean, I guess that's been around since Roosevelt, but boy, it really, really got bad. I'd agree with that. I think one one thing that probably triggered this, um, this does explain all four years of this attitude, but certainly the instant re- response you saw after the uh, 26 election was the failure of the media and the failure of pollsters to give any indication that Trump might win. Had the left gone into election day thinking, well, this is close, Trump might win, when he actually won, they might have thought, oh, gee, well, you know, not what we wanted, but we sort of saw this coming. They were completely buffaloed by this. They didn't see it coming at all. Frankly, those of us who supported him, a lot of us, I was pleasantly surprised that he won. I didn't think, I thought there was a good chance that he would, but I didn't think it was a lock. And so when, when they were shocked to see him win, I think that is par- probably part of what fueled their ongoing disbelief that it couldn't be legitimate. It had to be something rigged. It had to be something uh, Russian, foreign interference, collusion, et cetera, et cetera. And, and part of that, I think, is what triggered the hatred and, and continued uh, – the, the hatred that continued all the way through well, till right now, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Yeah. Here's the thing. But I'm going to follow up because, I mean, to me – it's more than just 
you know, the hatred part. It's like, I mean, I don't, I mean, I mean, the the conspiracy theory, the collusion, the collusion hoax that people in Washington had to know was a hoax, and certainly Biden, Obama, many of the people that surrounded them did. Adam Schiff did, and yet they went on shows after shows after shows. He said. And repeated the same lies over and over again, and my and to me, that's to me that's the most bothersome part, because there's a point someone really got to say enough is enough, you know, and certainly you had people in power who had the ability to say, this is wrong, this is, instead, it was almost as if we're going to impeach this guy no matter what he does. We're, uh, I think Byron, was a, Byron York just did a pretty good book on this recently. Where I mean, he details the fact that it didn't matter. You know, they had already had the knives out even before he walked in the door. I mean, I, I've never seen it that bad. I, I mean, I've seen it bad during the Reagan years. I can remember it bad during the the Bush years. Uh, you know, we always, you know, ever since Thomas Dewey, every Republican's been con- compared to Adolf Hitler. But this was taken into us that I've never seen. I mean, I don't, I, and that's and it wasn't like. And it was even the political leaders themselves participated in trying to say he was not a legitimate president. That, you know, I've not seen. Well, I really think that that part of part of this whole picture is is the is the uh, morality. I think that a lot of the appeal of uh, the far left and, 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 in fact, socialism and communism even, uh, it has always been the idealistic side of it, that, you know, everybody's equal and nobody has any um, uh, power over anybody else, and, and it's, a, we, it's a kumbaya, everybody lives in peace and happiness, and, uh, and equality. And by the way, they're now... They've redefined the word equity. Equity no longer means uh, part of ownership. It means uh, uh, equality, I guess, of uh, of uh, rights or freedom or something. But um, it seems to me that that they've made a, a virtual secular religion out of out of this uh, whole complex of uh, ideas, and and really. I mean, it goes back. Marx, Marx, and Engels really did that too. Uh, it, it, that's always been one of the one of the appeals of uh, socialism. Has always been this this more moral high ground sort of approach, and it, it has really taken root in in a lot of the people in the on the left. Uh, there's a lot of people that are pretty cynical, and they're not. They're just using it, but. There's also some real true believers, and uh, it seems to me that that this is really the heart of, of of what's going on, and and capitalism hasn't really fought free market. We haven't really fought that battle very well. Uh, there's a, this. There are new movements now in in uh, in capitalism to redefine it in a much more idealistic way, uh, which I think is. Well, the only answer, really, to to the um, to the left, but yeah, anyway, yeah. that that's I'm, my theory. Yeah, yeah. Here's a, now I'm going to get the door. Uh, Mark, 
Dewey on this for a reason because he's written quite a bit over the past several weeks on the Trump legacies and voter fraud. And uh, I'm going to start off with this because mm-hmm. uh, you've read you read articles that there was one of the articles you kind of had a list of all of his pop. I mean, of all of it. I mean, you got a it's like a laundry list. But here's but here's the, here's uh, there are two things strikes out to me. You know, the racist Donald Trump reauthorized the D.C. voucher program. Mm-hmm. And, and the way, why don't you kind of tell people what was the success of his economic plan? If you were a black or Hispanic, were you better off under Trump or under Obama? Uh, if you're black or Hispanic, you're much, much better off uh, under uh, Donald J. Trump than under Obama Biden. Uh, there's an excellent list of 605 different accomplishments uh, put together by the White House uh, a few days before uh, the Trump uh, administration ended. And they go into great detail on a number of things. And under uh, President Trump and Trumponomics, uh, the result of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, uh, the tremendous deregulation, he promised to kill two regulate, new regulations for every, sorry, two old regulations for every new regulation that got imposed. He actually got rid of eight old regulations for every new one imposed. And a very pro-business tone out of Washington, D.C., as opposed to what we had under Obama-Biden, which is, you didn't build that, and you're greedy, and it's all your fault. Uh, because the economy boomed like crazy in 2019, before COVID-19 came in and, and wrecked the economy, unfortunately, we had the highest median household income in American history, about $68,000, give or take. Uh, we also had the lowest poverty rate in the country uh, in our history. Uh, we also saw the uh, black unemployment, forgive me, black poverty rate uh, drop below 20% for the first time ever to a record low for black poverty. You had the lowest ever black unemployment, lowest ever Hispanic unemployment, uh, the lowest female unemployment since the Eisenhower era. So you saw just an absolute booming economy that didn't just benefit rich people hanging out uh, on their yachts or hanging out on on Park Avenue or or Malibu. You had people who were black, Hispanic, minorities, people who uh, had just high school degrees, people who dropped out of college, even people who dropped out of high school, uh, people who who returned from prison, all these different groups of people who normally had been forgotten and overlooked, uh, thriving like they never thrived before. Uh, and this was under, as a result of uh, pretty much uh, free market uh, uh, supply side policy, not the uh, giveaway socialism culture that we have under had under Obama that we now have under Biden. Um, and unfortunately, this is not this is not something that the left ever wants to talk about. The good news is that quite a few black voters. Uh, learned about this, and we saw Trump's black support go from 8% of the black vote in 2016 to 12%. He actually increases black support by 50%. Uh, black men went from 13% pro-Trump in 2016 to 19% in 2020, and black women went from 4% pro-Trump to 9%. That's a 125% increase uh, over four years. And I think if the media hadn't lied about him nonstop and, and engaged in the kind of uh, endless slurs and smears, he probably would have done a lot better. Uh, of course, the left understands if they lose uh, black support, then that's pretty much the end of the entire left-wing coalition. So they just basically got up and lied and lied and lied for four years, calling him a racist, a Klansman, white supremacist, etc. Even though there's nothing he did which advanced that concept, like you say, he, he's mentioned, uh, Tom, he uh, reauthorized the D.C. voucher program which Obama and Biden tried to kill repeatedly. Biden is dedicated to killing that program. Hope he doesn't, but don't be surprised if that happens. Um, Trump got uh, 
about 8,700 opportunity zones, primarily in low-income, many minority neighborhoods, to uh, help them thrive through uh, incentives, uh, capital gains tax of zero. $75 billion in private uh, investment came into those areas. And, of course, the uh, criminal justice reform, uh, First Step Act, which has, has given a second chance to nonviolent uh, uh, drug offenders to help them get out of jail and, and get on with their lives, yeah. many of whom happen to be black. So if he really were a racist, he wouldn't have done any of these things. Uh, a non-racist uh, conservative uh, free marketeer like Donald J. Trump is the kind of man who made these policies happen to the tremendous benefit of uh, Americans in general and minority uh, Americans in particular. Right. Hold on that thought. This is Tom Donaldson with the Donaldson Files here on the Bastard News Radio Network uh, with uh, DeRoy Murdoch and Dr. Larry Fedora. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for media flu. media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. And also here in Iowa, you can actually stay up till midnight because in Iowa, we'll allow you to come at midnight to any restaurant, including Buffalo Wild Wings, because we believe in a We actually do believe in freedom and trusting people like adults, even during pandemics. Uh, this is Tom Donaldson back here in the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. If you've got any calls, call in right. If you got any questions, call in 646. 929-0130-646-929-0130. Okay. Uh, let's get, okay. I, like I said, I, I thought that was a, you know, you, you kind of gave a nice summary overall of the economic accomplishments. Uh, right. uh, Thank you. I want to talk about the foreign policy side because you did an interview with one of uh, with one of the individuals who was in, uh, it was part of that. And uh, so why don't you guys talk about the, the person you interviewed and some of the things that two, two of you discussed. Mm-hmm, sure. Uh, a gentleman by the name of John Elliott um, was the uh, basically the spokesman for the National Security Council. And uh, he uh, resigned on the day before uh, the Trump's term ended. And basically uh, his last day at work was January 19th. Uh, that's a real, and he wrote a very positive letter about how much he appreciated working for President Trump and how many wonderful things were accomplished. Among them, um, ending the ISIS caliphate, totally gone. It was uh, Obama, Biden let it grow to the size of uh, twice the size of New Jersey. Uh, Trump basically unleashed the military, and, and the ISIS caliphate disappeared. Um, NATO allies, people have said, oh, Trump is beating up on our allies. We need to rebuild our alliances. One of the things that President Trump did, which is very impressive, was to uh, expect the uh, NATO allies to spend at least 2% of GDP 
on national defense, which is not his idea. That's something to which they committed previously. And when he arrived, only four countries, the U.S. and three other countries, uh, did that. By the time Trump left, uh, the U.S. and nine other countries were living up to uh, that commitment. That was another big positive. Um, Standing up to China, uh, not letting letting China roll over us as, as they have. For so many years, um, standing up to China and, and telling, all right, you know, you're not gonna, we're not going to be your, your little, uh, you know, plaything, as was the case in other administrations, um, and other things that he mentioned, uh, the trade deals we've had, U.S. Uh, MCA with uh, Mexico and Canada, and so on. Uh, so he talked about these very positive things that uh, that uh, President Trump was able to accomplish for the American people. And uh, in his letter of resignation, he said how proud he was to serve the president and went through these uh, various uh, accomplishments. Compare that to other resignation letters uh, from people like Elaine Chow, for example, people like Betsy DeVos, who uh, wrote their letters of resignation and then took that opportunity to kick, kick gravel in, in the president's face and blame him for the um, riot of, July, of uh, January 6th and uh, attack him for his style and on and on and on. I, I found those, um, that behavior really disloyal. And it really looked very careerist, as if people were trying to get on the record as opposing President Trump. So if they went to look for jobs as consultants or whatever else, they can say, oh, I, I got off the Trump train and I, I beat him up right before I got off the train. And so, you know, I'm not part of that evil 75 million, et cetera. Uh, and there seemed to be that kind of posturing, which I thought was really unseemly and, no. and unnecessary and unpleasant. So I was very happy to see John Elliott not part of that and for him to walk out with, with his head held high for um, his service yeah. to our country and his great service to the President of the United States. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Uh, I'm a, uh, Dr. Larry, what's your thoughts? I mean, if somebody said to you, what's the legacy? You know, what would well, you I add think, to that? Oh. I think the legacy basically is that uh, we're in a different we have a, a, a model now of a different way of looking at uh, both domestic, domestic and foreign policy uh, in the Trump, uh, the Trump legacy. I, I think that the idea of uh, energy independence, for example, uh, we had talked about that for years, ever since the Carter administration. Nobody ever did anything about it. He made it. He uh, made it happen. At least he allowed it to happen. Uh, and that, in turn, <clears throat> has a tremendous impact on on uh, our policy in the Middle East, uh, and so on. I mean, I think that the the uh, many of the things, the things that the dogmas that we took for granted for the period, really from Eisenhower to uh, probably to to the second Bush. Uh, Really, or certainly the certainly from Reagan to Bush, anyway, that we took that we took for granted, uh, are uh, we have now got a way of looking at uh, looking at the world that is uh, not only theoretically different but actually different, and, and and I take this this whole idea of globalization, which really swept the whole the whole uh, civilized world for. A generation, you know, that's that's got gone. It's gone. I mean, at least you don't have to accept it anymore, and so on. I think you can go right down the line. Yeah, Yeah, let me let's try to follow up that because to me, it's not just not globalization per se, but you know, to me, the biggest the biggest issue, let's say, of a liberal world order trading system is you have to have everybody on board with the rules. 
and you essentially have the second largest economy that's not on board. And I think to me that was where the whole, you know, the aspect of globalization came, you know, the failure came in is we failed to recognize that China's interest was not our interest or that of the rest of the world. Uh, that's my view. Uh, Delroy, what do you think? Yeah, that's a, a big part of it. And, and I, I will confess that I'm one of those people who thought uh, if we just let China into the World Trade Organization, they'll become more pro- more prosperous. They'll calm down and they'll be our friends. And I, I think there was there was a lot of we had a lot of good intentions there. And if the Chinese had followed up with that, I think it would be a better world. But unfortunately, they decided, well, we're going to cheat. We're going to steal intellectual property. Uh, we're going to uh, have companies come in, open up factories. Uh, you got to have your Chinese partner. And before you know it, the Chinese partners come in at three in the morning, stolen your blueprints, and is now producing your product at uh, you know 50% off, and you're out of business. Um, this is not the way friends treat friends, not the way business partners treat business partners. And I think it, it really took Donald Trump to stand up to China and point out that this is the kind of stuff they're doing, that this wasn't acceptable. And uh, before then, nobody really had the um, focus or the guts to, to do that in the past, unfortunately. And the Chinese did. And I think we largely had them on the run until, unfortunately, the, the Chinese Communist Party virus erupted almost exactly a year ago. And, and here we are with our still, still struggling to uh, overcome that enormous challenge. Yeah. Well, what's your thoughts, Dr. Larry? Well, I think that we, a lot of us were talking about alternative ways of doing things, uh, you know, during, during the uh, previous administrations, but um, this is, we now have a practical, actual experience of having, having done things differently. And, and that I think is worth a lot. Because it's one thing to talk about changing, and you know, and we all the idealism that we all uh, professed. We, we knew that there was something wrong with NATO, and <clears throat> and we knew that that there were a lot of we knew there were a lot of things that were wrong and that could be different. But we n- nobody really had a good strategy for how to how to fix it. And then Trump comes in, and he's got he comes in with. Uh, uh, do you know paying, paying duty t- tariffs on 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 trade? Well, nobody really ever thought of that before. At least I ever that I heard of. Um, and using that as a weapon to uh, change NATO and change uh, and to deal with uh, China and Russia. I mean, it, I, I think it's 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 worth a lot for people to be able to look back. And saying, okay, now this is another way of doing it, and let's compare that with what's actually going on right now. And I think that's even beginning to happen. I mean, even in even in some of the more liberal press uh, uh, stories, we're beginning to say people are beginning to say, well, let's see, you know, how how does this uh, big thing about uh, that we're seeing now in terms of energy? Uh, how's that? You know, all, what about all the the jobs that are being lost? And, and is that a good thing? And you know, that's not what wasn't that being done that way before. I, I just think it's. I think it's. It's really. That's a, that. That is the. That is the Trump legacy. I think. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I, 
I, I, to this, in particular, the Middle East, because I think this is one of those areas where, uh, and I have to be one of those, you know, this is that area where basically his approach, everybody said, can't work because we don't do it that way. We have to first have to have peace between the Palestinians and the Israelis, which is about, you know, you know that's the hell will freeze over before that happens. <laughs> I mean, think how yeah. brilliant that is. I mean, really. Well, no, no, yeah. I think, yeah, uh, I, I think Dr. Larry no, says brilliant in a certain – one of the things that uh, Donald J. Trump did repeatedly was to do things which we really kind of thought were impossible. Uh, there, were, there was no Middle East peace agreement from 1996 until, I believe, August of last year. And then between August and December, we got four different agreements. Unbelievable. And a lot of that was um, U.S. being energy independent, so we no longer were reliant on the Middle East. We, we were literally not over a barrel anymore, so we could tell them what we thought, not be there, be it uh, basically, basically uh, you know, knuckling under whatever they wanted. Number one. Number two, we got out of the um, Iran nuke deal and became very tough with the Iranians and gave the anti-Iranian uh, Gulf states the, the courage to stand up to Iran. Uh, we moved the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which I think said to the pe- people in that area, all right, we're very serious, serious about this. We're not going to play games with all the you know, Palestinian peace process, which never gets anywhere. And, when, and facing that new reality, people thought, all right, well, Israel's not going anywhere. It's not going to be destroyed. We might as well make peace with it. And so we got four Middle East uh, peace agreements with uh, uh, Muslim countries, including Sudan, which used to be on the list of, of uh, state sponsors of terrorism, for God's sake. Uh, within a matter of four months. I mean, nobody saw that possible. And this didn't just happen with one deal, it happened with four of them. Um, and this out of a man who a lot of people thought was this big uh, you know, bomb-throwing uh, you know, uh, warmonger turned out to be exactly the opposite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. here's an interesting aspect. I'm going to follow up on that point because here's the, to me is that what Trump saw, maybe in a way what others didn't see, is that when you got a player like Iraq, and Iraq is essentially, I mean, they basically have all of southern Lebanon. They basically, the, Hamas is their, and the, you know, Hamas is their little plaything, and uh, on this, you know, west, you know, was it West Bank, not West Bank, Gaza, the Gaza Strip. Um, they pretty much are propping up Assad, and they, and they kind of made it clear to Assad, you know, we do what we want to do. And if you want to stay in power, so in effect they, and what and I think what they you know somebody what in fact is that okay you got this aggressive regional power that's working to get nuclear weapons to be the regional power with it you know in that area and a lot of these Sunni states decided you know I could tolerate a Jewish state over an Iranian Persian. Look at uh, that, that, huh? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, somewhere along the line, somebody thought it. I mean, and to me, this was thinking that this was ideas that, you know, I could see two or three years ago. We, you know, we had a, a Kevin Cork, who for years we used to have on the show. And, and, uh, and I'll tell you, he's one of the few honest reporters left out there. And, 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 and I love the way Kevin would do things. I was, I would say, hey, I read this piece about what's going on in the Middle East. Sounds like we're moving in this direction. And Kevin would do one of these, well, Tom, I have sources that I have to protect, and I can't be giving you too much information uh, so I can keep my sources. But you're on the right path. 
It's <laughs> <laughs> a good journalist. <laughs> yeah, you're on the right path. So, mm-hmm. and I, and but the thing is, you know, but these are, and this is what you know, and these are the things that one, you know, that somewhere along the line, maybe it took that outsider to say, God, this doesn't make sense. Yeah, you know, we've done this thing for fifty years, and it's not doing anything. We got this regional power wants nuclear weapons, and they're scaring the Bazoot, not just out of Israel, but out of their neighbors. Don't like them. You know, can we make a deal somewhere? Maybe it took a deal maker to figure that out. Uh, I'm gonna, I, I, I'll let you I guys... think this is this is one of the advantages of having a guy like Trump come in, a guy who, who has not been tied down to whatever the State Department has been doing for the last you know, 30 or 40 years. Well, it's always been, been this, done this way, so we're going to keep doing it this way. You have a guy who comes in, looks at these problems with, with fresh eyes, and, uh, for example, you've had, this goes back hundreds of years, the, the tensions in the former Yugoslavia, the, the, the Balkan, uh, uh, ongoing Balkan uh, uh, hatreds, which are yeah. deep and, and vicious. Um, the uh, Serbia and Kosovo have gone back and forth for, for millennia, beating each other up. And uh, the whole situation was, okay, we'll just sit around a table and talk about politics. And they never, never were able to get to any resolution. Uh, Trump, through Rick Grinnell, the former uh, U.S. ambassador to Germany and former acting director of national intelligence, had a great idea. He said, look, let's put, this, put the political thing on the back burner. Let's see if we can get them to agree to improve economic relations. And if they can agree, okay, we'll trade back and forth. We'll let tourists visit back and forth, et cetera. And if we can get them to do that, once they've calmed down and realize they're not there to you know necessarily kill each other, maybe we can move on to the you know political discussion. And in fact, one of the deals he did was to get Kosovo and Serbia to engage in economic relations for the first time. And now they've got that deal there. They're 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 so busy doing trade and, and business together that maybe they'll learn learn that they don't have to love each other, but at least can get along. And maybe they can come up, come up to some uh, come to some political settlement. So just using some imagination and doing something different than what's been done and failed uh, for decades is part of, I think, what was the magic of, of uh, President Trump's successes. It really was. Hold on, I yeah. yeah, hold on, I thought, Blair. We're going to follow up on that uh, after these few words. This is Tom Donaldson here on the Donaldson Files on the National News Radio Network on Wednesday, which is the, as everybody should now know, Wednesday is Resistance Wednesday on the Doctor. Larry Show and the Donaldson Files. We are the freedom fighters of today. Greetings and great day, everyone. I am Elder Janelle Strickland, host of the Life Cafe radio broadcast from Maximizing Life Family Worship Center. I invite you to tune in every Saturday from 5 to 6 p.m. Tune in, maximize your life with the Word of God, and be blessed. Only on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. Yes, Buffalo Wild Wings. Uh, if you want to, if there's a team you love, they'll try to find a way to get it for you here on Buffalo Wild Wings. And don't forget, here in the state of Iowa, uh, you can actually uh, 
uh, stay at your local Buffalo Wild Wings till midnight. Which reminds me, uh, speaking of that, here, if you want to call in, 646-929-0130. How's everything going in New York, Delroy? Are they allowing you guys into restaurants now, or do you still have to wait for King Andrew? (laughs) Well, we live in the Empire State. Empire State, I call him Emperor Cuomo, our our emperor here. Uh, It is now, let's see here, 36 degrees outside. And it's quite cold. And if we want to uh, go to a restaurant, you still have to eat outdoors, still have to eat outside. I went out to a dinner with some friends of mine, went to a place uh, that serves uh, Cajun uh, seafood called The Boil, which is a great name, uh, except that's not how we felt. We were actually outdoors eating outside uh, in this sort of like half-covered area. And it was 23 degrees out. Uh, I literally was wearing, uh, let's see, uh, two pairs of socks, uh, let's see, toe warmers, boots. I had, uh, let's see, thermal underwear, uh, pajama button, bottoms, and then pants, and then six layers on my torso and two pairs of gloves. Okay, this is how I eat dinner in New York City on Saturday night. Uh, another friend was pretty bundled up. Another was not so bundled up. He started shivering, and we had to finish up dinner quickly because he was in his chair chair shaking. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I mean, it's almost like a, like a comedy sketch to go out to dinner here. And what's really stupid about it is that um, there are statistics based on uh, contact tracing. And in New York State, between November, uh, September and November, uh, only 1.4% of COVID-19 uh, uh, infections can be traced to restaurants indoors at home with your with your friends your family your loved ones etc that number is 74% so it's 53 times more unhealthy to eat at home with your friends and family and loved ones than out, out than at a restaurant and so what Cuomo literally is doing is shoving people out of relatively safe restaurants and pushing us pushing us into more dangerous home settings i mean it's exactly the opposite of what he should do if he had any brains, what he'd do is say, look, people, get out of your homes, go eat in restaurants, keep the restaurants alive and well, and by the way, just make it easy on you. Uh, we'll, we're going to suspend the sales tax on restaurant meals until uh, June 1. Restaurants would spring yeah. back to life. Infections would fall. Everybody would be happy. But um, Emperor Cuomo is going the other way around, and this is the same guy who's so brilliant at uh, distributing the vaccines that he's botched that up, and they've actually thrown vaccines that have expired, thrown them into the trash. So we're not exactly uh, dealing with, uh, shall we call it, competent uh, leadership here in New York State, unfortunately. Well, I guess uh, to me, I, I had this conversation with uh, uh, on a previous show, and, and the conversation was, who's the worst governor in America? And <laughs> I've always stated on Twitter that it's a tough competition, but uh, uh, Andrew, the granny killer, Kumo, has been able to exceed – Total evilness and total incompetence. Mm-hmm. What any other governor? And I tell you, it's competition out there. That's uh, no you got Tom, question. You got you got Tom Wolf, mm-hmm. who basically decided it was a wonderful idea. Let's go put Rachel Levine in charge of our health department, who promptly then, like Andrew the Granny Killer Kumo, thought it was a great idea to put you know sick COVID patients in nursing homes. But at least she was smart. She was smart enough to remove her mother before she decided this would be a great idea. How about that? Isn't that something? Yeah, yeah. It, it's almost like he knew what was going to happen, but he did it anyway. No kidding. I should say she did it. In. She did it and then, anyway. And I'm then sorry. in California, you got Gavin Newsom, who has banned outdoor dining in a place where 
Uh, I haven't looked at the weather today, but my guess is it's January in, in Southern California. It's probably uh, s- sunny and 75 degrees. And if it's not today, then maybe tomorrow. You know, we're not, not in the 30s. Uh, I mean, it, it, maybe there's an argument to be made not to eat indoors, but there's no reason you can't sit on a patio in Santa Monica or San Francisco or San Diego or any other sand yeah. cities out there and have a nice outdoor outdoor meal and, and uh, have all the breeze blowing the germs away. Nope. Can't have that. Got to shut all that stuff down uh, while he has yeah. dinner at the French Laundry at, uh, with his uh, yeah. lobbyist friends. I mean, it's just mind-blowing, yeah. truly. Okay, now let's go, go back to the, the Trump legacy. The, you know, we've got, here's the question I'm going to throw back to both of you. It's the coalition. Can this coalition that he's put together hold together? Or are the Republicans smart enough to figure out a way to hold this coalition and expand upon that coalition? which is basically minorities, increased number of minorities, rural and blue-collar workers, uh, you know, grabbing a higher percentage in the past, and, and basically trying to recapture some of the suburbanites who just felt that, uh, you know, Donald was too mean with his tweets. I guess they'll find out short enough, soon enough that having a guy with a mean tweet it might be better than uh, having – a nice tweeter who's basically going to take away your freedoms. But can that coalition hold together? And are the Republicans smart enough to figure out a way to build on this coalition? I'll start with you, Dr. Larry. Um, you want to say that again? <laughs> oh, yeah. Right, I'll tell you what, I'll... Uh, I'll start. Is that right? Did you understand what yeah, I said? Yeah, uh, sure. I, I caught that. Yeah, I would say yeah. that um, can the uh, coalition that Donald J. Trump uh, put together uh, stay together and uh, go on to win victories in 2022 and 2024? Uh, I think it can. Um, I think a lot of this really lies in the hands not of Donald, Donald Trump, Donald J. Trump, but uh, really in the hands of Joseph R. Biden. Um, if, if Biden is smart, he will take the uh, underlying fundamentals of this economy, which were thriving before uh, COVID-19, and you know he can have a little event here and give a speech there, but for the most part, leave it alone. And if he does that, the uh, low taxes, low regulations, and the other uh, policies of President Trump will allow the economy to thrive. Once we all get vaccinated, we have COVID-19 behind us. There's no reason That's this economy should take off like That's... crazy, and Biden can take credit for it. My guess That's is he's not, not going to do that. I think you're right. He's going to get his nose into everything, stick his fingers in everything, throw uh, sledgehammers into the works, and the whole thing will come uh, crashing to a halt. And if that does, I think a lot of people will say, as Tom put it, well, I wasn't crazy about uh, you know the, the, the uh, Twitter comments under Trump, but boy, it was nice to be able to pay my bills versus having this guy who's uh, you know maybe a little less uh, obnoxious, but uh, boy, everything's just in flames. Uh, and if that's the way that Biden governs, I think that, that coalition – uh, is going to come running, saying uh, either we want Trump back or we want somebody like Ron DeSantis or somebody else uh, to put the coalition together and, and restore the, uh, yeah. the, well, the growth, yeah. prosperity, and freedom we had under Trump. Where's, yeah. where's the, the leadership coming from? Where do you think the leadership's coming from? Yeah. Well, GOP, let me give you mean? my view. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let, me, yeah. let me give you my view, Doug, and then I'll let you two go. You know, again, I don't know what's going to happen over the next year, you know, to what extent the Trump will have influence. Uh, but sometimes in these situations, you know, the leader's already there. We just have, 
He's just he or she has not come forward. And I think, you know, you mentioned Ron DeSantanis. Uh Christy Nome is another one who I love. Uh, and and I just think they're out there. Uh, Tom Cotton is out there. The question's gonna be to me is whether or not the Republican Party is smart enough to realize this is the coalition and you have to design policies that keeps this coalition together. Uh, and I see this, and that's just my view. And, I, and one of the issues, I, I'm disappointed with National Review. It just seems like over the last month, it's like they're part of a movement to throw away this coalition. You've mm-hmm. got the establishment conservatives. And, and the irony to me is that a good portion of what Rich Lowry and others like Ramesh have been saying for five, you know, for the years, he's enacted. Mm-hmm. And yet, how how many of them are complaining and trying to? And it's almost like they're trying to throw away this coalition around issues that they themselves have promoted. Uh, what's your thought? Yeah, I mean, you, I, you know some of these people. I do. Well, you know, I'm a contributing editor with National Review, and I, I know these people uh, as colleagues. I know them as friends, and and I said to a bunch of them, I said, look, you know, you're busy trashing. Donald J. Trump, and what has the man done other than implement our agenda? I mean, with a couple of exceptions, uh, you know, I'm, I'm probably more of a free trader than uh, President Trump was, although I do understand the idea of using tariffs as a, as a two by four to get the Chinese, to get uh, uh, China's attention, and I think that worked to a degree. Uh, but, you know, I, I think he was batting 90% of the time, he was batting at the level that uh, Ronald Reagan was or to the right. And, and we had big policies like lower taxes and deregulation, even some small stuff like, you know, the 1776 commission. He didn't have to do that. He could have avoided that, but he, he said, let's bring back, bring back patriotic education, uh, getting rid of the uh, guidance letter, which uh, got rid of due process for uh, college students, primarily college uh, men who got accused of sexual harassment. And the accusation was the conviction. It, you, know, you couldn't bring in lawyers. You couldn't uh, face your accusers. Uh, that was something Obama implemented. Trump got rid of that. So, I mean, big stuff he got right, small stuff he got right. And rather than celebrate and say thank you, a lot of people, unfortunately too many of my National Review colleagues and the Never Trump people would just focus on, oh, he's too loud and oh, he's too abrasive and all this stylistic stuff. And I say just ignore that. That's just static. Focus on the substance. And the substance is 90% of the time exactly what we want, including, like I say, some, some small things which almost were like gifts that just came out of the sky, which we never expected to see. Um, and so I, yeah. people ought to focus on that, and maybe if he's at Mar-a-Lago and not quite in our faces quite so much, maybe people will calm down and focus on what he actually did for present and focus focus less on, on the uh, stylistic um, um, shortcomings that some people think he had. Well, yeah, to, to me, you mentioned Joe Biden. I think Joe Biden's going to remind us exactly what we lost mm-hmm. in all of this. Absolutely. Uh, okay. Dr. Larry, your thoughts? Well, I, I think that the I think the future is in our hands right now. I think that we are in a position where if we do if we do the right thing, and Biden does the wrong thing, uh, we can come out of this thing. We can come out of it with a uh, a, a win and and an enduring uh, redefinition of. Uh, of Americans' position in in the world, uh, both domestically and 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 in foreign policy, 
but uh, but what we what we don't that we can't take that for granted because that's not it's not a given uh and i see that i see that we have some new leaders coming up i think this josh Hawley is one mm-hmm. um ted cruz i think has uh, got a lot of potential uh he's really calmed down in terms of uh his uh, getting focused <clears throat> um I don't know what's wrong with with uh, Rich Lowry. I, I, I just I can't figure that guy out. But I think some of the people that we've looked upon in the past as uh, leaders are, are are not going to be there uh, for us in any sense. And uh, so uh, that's that's my thought. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm very sang- is- yeah. I'm very sanguine on on Josh Hawley. Uh, I think Ted Cruz has a lot to offer. He's very smart. I do agree with uh, uh, with Dr. Larry that he sort of calmed down. He was kind of very confrontational with a lot of his uh, uh, fellow senators. I think he's learned to play, work and play well with others, I think, to it in a good sense. He's got to get rid of that beard. He looks like Pancho Villa. I don't know what he's doing. He needs to shave <laughs> that thing off. It's yeah. terrible. Yeah. Uh, Matt Gates is amazing. He's extremely well-spoken. He's from one of the safest districts in the country, so he can uh, stick his neck out really far without having to worry about negative political repercussions. Uh, he can do very well in the House and go on from there. And as I said before, Ron DeSantis seems to be doing one good thing after another in Florida. And that's he's another that's one, got, yeah. He's just yeah. amazing, and he's got, what is it, 29 electoral yeah. votes, and after a reapportionment, it might be 30 or 31. I mean, if he runs for president, he'll have, and he wins Florida, which I assume he'll do, uh, he'll win uh, already more than 10% of, of the number needed to get to 270. Uh, so yeah. I, I well, keep an eye on that man. Yeah, I look at him, and I look at and I'll tell you the other reason why I like those like those two people, yeah, Christy Nome and him, is this. They don't back down when the media comes. The media, they don't back down. Mm-hmm. You see, like, uh, you know, it's like with, uh, you know, Christy Nome, you know, you're the murder capital of COVID, and she'll respond back. Oh, yeah? I'll take my, I'll take, you know, I'll take my comparison to uh, to Andrew Cuomo anytime. Oh, BS. Well, uh, P.S., I got a 3% unemployment. Yeah. Which is unemployment. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. But that's, you know, yeah, and 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 right, and I tell you the truth, you know, I I had a chance to interview somebody about a couple of weeks about a week ago, yeah, dealing with COVID, uh, uh, Jennifer Calvero for Rational Ground, and she told me she said the thing about Ron, the governor of Florida, he said the guy's a nerd, <laughs> he's a nerd, he knows the science, he sits back and studies the stuff, and when he gets confronted, he looks at his major piece and says, no, you got the science wrong, here it is, mm-hmm. and. And this is a guy who literally had a conference where he had people like Michael Levette talk about COVID. And you know, Michael Levette, by the way, unlike uh, Tony, I know everything, Fauci, is actually a Nobel Prize winner. Hmm. He actually hmm. is a scientist, not a bureaucrat with a Ph.D. <laughs> <laughs> is that a good description, uh, Dr. Larry, with uh, uh, Tony Fauci? A bureaucrat with a Ph.D. M.D.? <laughs> yeah. he um, He's also the, the – uh, has the highest uh, salary of any federal employee in the world. Isn't that amazing? Hmm. How about that? What are the odds <laughs> <Yeah>. of that? <laughs> it's, it's an amazing. How did that happen? Amazing what they, yeah, it's amazing what incompetence can do in Washington D.C. Well, listen, we have to kind of sum this up. Uh, I, I want to thank uh, DeRoy Murdoch for coming on. You're a very busy man. I appreciate appreciate working with you during the campaign, and look forward to working with you in the future. 
and enjoy all your writing, Dr. Larry. You stay on Thank there you. because yeah, the resistance hour with Dr. Larry and Tom will be starting very shortly. And we are and we have a great guest, Adam Hauser from CFACT. Uh, he'll be joining us and he's ready online, ready to rock and roll. You know, it's the resistance hour with uh, Dr. Larry and Tom uh, Donaldson. I'm Dr. Larry Fidewa, and uh, I'm your co-host for the evening with Tom. And uh, tonight we're going to be talking about uh, energy, for the, at least to start with. And uh, we have a distinguished uh, uh, guest tonight, uh, Adam Hauser. And Adam, welcome to uh, the resistance hour. Thank you so much, sir. It's a pleasure to be on. Can you uh, tell tell the audience a little bit about your background so that they know uh, how intelligent you really are? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I'll do my best. Uh, well, I serve as the director of Collegians and uh, the national field director for CFACT. That stands for the Committee for Constructive Tomorrow. And we're a 501c3 nonprofit based in Washington, D.C. Uh, we're one of the premier free market energy and environment public policy organizations uh, in the nation, and I direct our outreach to college students primarily, also other grassroots organizations, to try to get them the truth, the facts on science, climate, energy, and environment uh, that might go against what they're hearing in our halls of academia and their liberal professors, and I write a lot about energy and environment issues for CFAC.org, attended some of the United Nations climate change summits around the world to kind of act as a watchdog there and testified to Department of Interior on AMWAR drilling. So kind of knee-deep in all these energy and environment issues. It's fun stuff, and we're trying to expose the truth. Uh, boy, that must be a, a kind of a thankless job. Uh, how, how is that working with the uh, college students and faculty? Well, we've got uh, some great students out there. We have several student leaders around the country who – really are enthused about trying to enlighten their friends to the truth, you know. And so we certainly have our pushback. I know I was tabling, doing some recruiting at Temple University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, uh, talking about the benefits of fracking and kind of the uh, wrong truth or the wrong facts, uh, the wrong kind of data out there about it. And uh, the student came up and took my sign and crumpled it, threw it in the trash, cursed me out, had another professor, you know, telling me I should be ashamed of myself. And so we get our pushback for sure. But uh, there's plenty of students out there who are hungry for the truth. Uh, we've got a national program active on dozens of campuses. And so, uh, you know, it's fun stuff. You know, as you see these students start to realize that everything they've been told is really false when it comes to these issues, uh, it's really fun to watch them get passionate about it. 
Well, you're you're a, you you are a strong man, Charlie Brown. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, yeah, welcome. Uh, yeah, well, you're uh, you're still with us, I reckon. Yeah, yeah. I'm just listening. Yeah, I'm just listening in here. Uh, here, let, let me let me throw this out to you, Adam, because I want to kind of get started. Uh, because it's always about the science. You know, we always say it's about the science. You know, you gotta be the believer in the science. And and I guess I'm gonna throw this out. And then I'm going to let you comment on it and then talk about the problems we're having with this, is getting this, a scientific debate out. But if somebody sure. came to me, you know, somebody came to me in like 1988 and, and, and said to me, Tom, the planet, if I was, the planet's going to get greener, either due to both human ingenuity and conservation and a little extra CO2. We're going to be feeding more people we've ever fed before, higher calorie diet. More people will be entering the middle class than ever before. I would say to you that maybe a little warming is not a bad thing after all, but certainly it's not the disaster that Jim Hansen predicted at the end of the 1980s. Would you say that Jim Hansen's theory, based on that alone, that empiric evidence, proves that his theory was wrong? In part, I would say yes. I mean, you know, the the climate and the earth have existed for, what, millions, billions of years. And we are told that uh, because human activity, which is being measured just over the past, you know, 150 years or so, when we actually started measuring some of this stuff, and, you know, not very accurately until the last, you know, decade or two or three, um, that, you know, all these benefits that you're talking about, um, you know, earth getting greener, people living longer, um, eating more, um, you know, Thomas Malthus back in the day in the, in the 1700s said, you know, um, we're not going to be able to feed uh, anyone on earth. You know, famines right. are coming. We yeah. need to have population control, kill off minority populations because we can't, can't afford to feed them. And the exact opposite has happened. You know, we're uh, uh, billions and billions of people, and they're eating more than ever before. Um, and so, you know, I think what we do is we look at, hey, you know, the pros far outweigh the cons here uh, of about the two degrees of warming we've seen over the past, uh, you know, few decades. And that's not really too out of the realm of what's normal in the historical record of the Earth, you know. And, in fact, it's um, far under some temperatures that we've had before. But uh, for Hansen and the likes of the climate scientists, you know, the career climate scientists, I say, who are kind of entrenched in our bureaucracy, um, it's all about only looking at these little possible negatives and trying to blow it out of proportion. Um, because if everybody's paying attention to that stuff, keep getting grants, keep getting government funding, keep getting in the news headlines. Um, it's kind of what we call a climate industrial complex now. And it's hard to stop that once the money's flowing. It it's really it's in it's seems it seems so obvious you know you go, go out on your porch and see if you can change the the uh, weather I mean everybody knows you can't do that and yet <laughs> yeah and yet you know everybody they they're scared now because of uh, they've had the uh, wildfires in the west and uh, bad hurricane season and it. it it's just it's it, it's really a phenomenon. It, it's almost a it, it's almost like a religion, really. 
because there's no evidence, really. <laughs> if you stop and think of it, common sense is against any uh, idea that, that this is all uh, controllable by by people, by human beings. And yet you've got all these people that are scared to death about it. It's an existential crisis. But, you know, it, it just doesn't make any sense. And oh. I guess this is... Uh, Speaking yeah. of the choir, they're preaching in the choir, but yeah. N- necessary. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, let me yeah, let me throw this back. Let me put it back to you, Adam. Is this okay? You mentioned you had a professor say shame on you. Here's the thing: how difficult? I mean, I look at like somebody like a Judith Curry, who basically mm-hmm. would have a hard time if she can get published at all anymore. We don't really have a debate going on because you're basically. You know, you got if you're on a certain side, you're not even going to get into the literature. We saw some of this in the COVID crisis, where literally, if you were a quote unquote skeptic of the lockdown, you would have a hard time getting published. You know, somebody asked the, the one of the Danish uh, health ministers who just when they did their study on masks, you know, how effective it was or wasn't, and you know, and and the question came out, you know, when are you going to get this thing published? Just said when somebody actually allows it to be published. They were saying that, mm. you know, they, they were not going to get published. I mean, they had a, they finally got it published, but certainly many of the top journals would not publish the study, even though they identify ahead of time the criteria that they were using. And I don't remember anybody ever saying, "Well, that's those are really lousy criteria." And and we see yeah. that more so with the climate ecology, where there is no science. I mean, science is based on debates. It's based on what we know today may not be true tomorrow, and it's based on true testing. And when I co- when we come back, I want you to kind of comment on the collapse of the science and the scientific practice. This is Tom Donaldson yeah. with Adam Hauser with CFAC, along with Dr. Larry. Donaldson Pop presents talk radio like you've never heard it before on the Bastard News Radio Network. We go live every Tuesday and Wednesday on this network, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Go to thebachelornews.airtime.pro. We are on the cutting edge, and we are ahead of the curve on what is happening while the media tries to catch up. We talk issues from right to left. Once a month, we have Ladies Night, where we talk relationship in the 21st century, and nothing is off limits or taboo. Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Network. That's right, Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. You can get this show and other shows anytime on our podcast. Uh, welcome to the Bachelor News Radio Network. Here's our website, thebachelornewsradionetwork.com, and you can turn on to the Dr. Larry Show Resistance Hour and get some of the great shows that Dr. Larry uh, does. And not only that, but you can even get a good picture of what Dr. Larry actually looks like. <laughs> well, I used to look like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, all right, let's yeah, let's go back. Okay, science. I'm going to ask you: Is science being corrupted by the politics and by the funding, the federal funding, and basically where, uh, especially in the case of climatology, uh, is in your view being corrupted to that point? Where we don't have an honest scientific debate anymore. Oh, absolutely, and I would, 
go even further, not to be pessimistic, but, you know, it's not just being corrupted. The job is done and it's been done for several years now. Um, you know, this, uh, just idea where, um, you know, we, we kind of line this out and we just released a documentary uh, a couple months ago uh, called climate hustle two. And we line out kind of how, you know, if you are a scientist who has any form of dissenting opinion, and that doesn't necessarily just mean that you flat out reject wholesale that humans have any sort of impact on the climate at all. But even if you just have some doubts and you want to explore that more in your professional study and research, you will not get approved for grants. You will not get invited to certain conferences. You will not get, you know, sometimes tenure in certain cases. Um, You're not a part of the club and they control all of the avenues of access to the club. And for those who do get in, you get rewarded with the grants and with the notoriety and with the uh, prestige. Now, you know, you mentioned Judith Curry and these other scientists. Um, These are people who, you know, kind of came up in the ranks of uh, higher education back in a time where it wasn't fully corrupted yet. So I remember, you know, CFACs, we kind of attend all of these climate conferences uh, around the world. And I was at one of them a couple of years ago in D.C. They were on the National, uh, the National Mall, the Washington Monument. And so we unfurled a big banner, said, you know, climate science isn't settled, had people try to steal it from us. We handed out climate fact sheets uh, to these protesters, you know, just to kind of poke through their bubble that they're living in here and letting them know there's facts out here they're not seeing. Uh, one kind, you know, older woman came up to me, and she was very distraught that someone of my age would believe these things that, you know, I don't think that we're in an existential climate crisis that I do think it's, uh, you know, not quite as settled that we're having the impact they say we're having on the climate. And she started to say that, you know, you know, no one uh, agrees with you in the, in the climate, uh, you know, professors and scientists. And I stopped her right there, you know, politely. And I just said, you know, well, that's not quite true. We've got Judith Curry. We've got Dr. Susan Crockford. We got Dr. William Happer, Dr. Roy Spencer, all very prestigious people. And I kept going on and on. Eventually I stopped and she was kind of left speechless. And I realized from that interaction that they've never heard of these people. They've never heard of the idea that people who are in the climatology field um, are presenting other evidence. They don't get news time. They don't get studies. Um, and the last thing I'll add on this is that now the new thing is they'll say, if you present something else, Oh, well, that's not peer reviewed. That's not a peer reviewed study. Well, when all of the climate alarmists and those who are radical environmentalists are controlling the level, the levers of whether something gets peer reviewed or not, it's pretty convenient to say that if it doesn't agree with your narrative, you get to say, oh, well, it's not peer reviewed. So we're not going to look at that. You know, you can make the same argument uh, in other fields too. Uh, this is really what's happening with, uh, with, uh, uh, the Chinese uh, influence on academic world, you know, they're uh, con- they're controlling so many of the uh, of the uh, fellowships and uh, research grants and and uh, the orthodoxy now uh, is pervasive in uh, the foundations for for the all the funding that you do for you know all different kinds of uh, academic uh, pursuits. And uh, it's just, it's insidious, really. I mean, it, 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 it just, it, it, it um, takes the entire concept of uh, academic freedom and just 
uh, after, you know, tra- traumatizes it. There is no such thing anymore. Yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, the way that our, our institutions of higher education are being corrupted is is really sad, and um, it's both by the federal grants. Uh, it's also by some actions of you know the Chinese government for sure. I know there were some scandals recently uh, at Harvard in particular about the yeah. Chinese government, you know, kind of setting up um, these institutions. I think some of them were, were called like Confucius uh, centers or something like that. Yeah, but it's really, right, exactly. Yeah. Confucius to, Institute. Yeah. yeah, Confucius Institute. And really just kind of to propagandize, you know, the upcoming leaders of this nation that, um, you know, China is like the an incredible world actor and they're not doing anything wrong and, not only that, but to steal our, our scientific secrets as well. I think that was also something in the, in the Harvard scandal. And, um, you know, you see this this happening. Uh, they closed the Houston consulate um, because they had a lot of uh, Chinese spy activity. Uh, Representative Swalwell on the Intelligence Committee in the House um, was compromised yeah. uh, by a Chinese spy recently. Yeah, I got it. Because I don't know if you, you know, Mark Stein is one of the funniest guys out there. And I know you've read a lot of his writings on, because he wrote an entire book on his battles with Michael Mann. And he did a piece on that stuff. I mean, I know this is going to sound somewhat crude, but it's like, you know, something, I think the title was Sawwell Fang, Fang, Fang. Because <laughs> I think that's what her name was, was Fang or Fang, Fang. Or his code name. But I just, it just thought to myself, God, what, you know. Only Mark Stein could come up with a headline like that. Sure. Okay. We, yeah. yeah I mean, back to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but it it's does really kind of, just, um, it's a shame. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. It, it, but here's the thing. because He's on the intelligence committee. He's one of the leaders to, to accuse Trump of being a, you know, a partner, of, you know, a puppet of Putin. And here he is having uh, uh, sex with the, uh, a Chinese spy. Uh, he's actually he a, he's on the impeachment yeah. committee too. Yeah, so it's like yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I I'm just waiting for somebody during this debate say, uh, can you tell me the name of that Chinese lady that you had carnal knowledge with, and how many secrets did you whisper into her ears? <laughs> But yeah, you want her. You want but, uh, to tell You want him to tell us how she was. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I would say if I'm a Republican, I, I'm sitting there. That would be. I would look him straight in the eye and I would say, "Tell me about the Chinese spy that you had carnal knowledge with, and how was she, and how many secrets <laughs> did you whisper into her ears?" That would be. But okay, back to climate change. I mean, I don't think Rich. I don't think Rich Lowry would like that. Yeah, but yeah, but here's the yeah. yeah. Okay, Adam, you make a good point. I mean, essentially, science is being corrupted. Uh, yeah, and absolutely. But how do we return? I mean, is there any return back to that, or were we at that point where, in certain areas, it's beyond hope, it's beyond the return, no return? I mean, somewhere along the line, we have to get back to two plus two actually still equals four. So. Right. Where do we go from here? Exactly. I mean, um, 
you know, it's I, I've got split opinions on this. You know, I never give up hope you know, for the country, you know, for America. We've seen some dark times in our past history, but we still moved forward and recovered. Um, but it's certainly going to be challenging. I don't see the, you know, like I said before, this climate industrial complex being broken down anytime soon. I had hopes under the Trump administration that if he had gotten a second term, maybe they would have been emboldened a little bit to start challenging these things on the regulatory side. And specifically what needs to happen is you need to start undoing some of the damage that the EPA and other regulatory agencies were doing by declaring carbon dioxide an endangerment to human beings, um, shifting some of this federal climate funding to those who actually are going to do an honest review of the science, presenting some skeptical uh, scientists' opinions on federal websites, and changing some of the federal grants to universities. You know, But the Trump administration was afraid to do that in the first term and a lot of those things because they thought it was going to bring too much heat on them. Well, it turns out it was a, a moot point because, you know, they're not in office now anyway. If another conservative gets an office in the future, I think that we can still do that because a lot of that is through executive action that can be changed, you know, without necessarily needing huge acts of, of Congress to come behind that and do that. Um, but the heat will be big and it's not going to be easy. And, you know, with what all the, the games that Biden's playing now on the federal side and all the games they're playing with elections integrity, you know, getting a conservative in and then having one that's actually going to have the guts to do that is going to be very tough. Yeah. Yeah, that's getting right, anybody in, getting anybody in is, is getting more and more problematic because of the, uh, I mean, if, they, if they've gone this far with... <clears throat> With uh, polluting the uh, federal election for uh, for president, uh, who's to say that, that that they can't stop anything? Well, it's well, that's a good. I mean, but the thing is, eventually, someplace, somewhere, something has to be done. Because what we're looking, I mean, here's the thing. Yeah, let me. Th- I'm going to throw this out, then I'll get the both of you comment on this. Is okay when I look at the COVID science. I mean. Literally, the skeptics have been far more correct in their assessment of this virus. Yeah, and I'm talking about people like Martin Kulendorf. I'm talking about Scott Atlas, John Andalonis, and others versus, let's say, those of uh, Tony Fauci. Uh, the reality is, but in the end, we, we had bad science producing very bad economic policies that will end up killing more people than we are going to end up saving to the virus. On the Green New Deal, we're not talking, you know, even worse damage. We're talking billions of people who could end up dying of starvation because there's not going to be enough energy to produce the food needed to feed these people. Bad policies means bad, you know, bad science means bad policy. And the biggest fear I have is like, is this. Is that the only way we're going to see famine, droughts, and any of this is when we change the policy to the, you know, to a more Marxist socialist? You'll get your starvation, and they'll blame it on climate change. But the the, the stake is too high. Bad science equals bad policy that will kill billions. Uh, and I'll start with you, Adam. 
Yeah, I mean, you're right. Uh, energy poverty, as it's called, is a very real thing. And uh, it's already a very real thing in Europe, uh, specifically, you know, um, Eastern Europe, where a lot of people have to decide between what is called heating or eating. You know, do I get to feed myself? Do I get to feed my family? Or do I heat my home? And even in the UK, I mean, there's some studies shown that as energy prices increase, um, elderly populations uh, unfortunately start to um, die at higher numbers because they're starting to not heat their home as much, and it's really exposing them to cold conditions. And so um, when you start fiddling with these, these things, these energy policy, as Biden is doing, you know, which is inevitably going to make everyone's energy bill, gas prices uh, go up, skyrocket in many ways. Um, you know, they'll be able to say, well, oh, it's just a, a few cents per gallon or, or that type of thing. It's not going to have that big of an impact. You know, they say they care about the little guy. He says he cares about people who are thinking, staying up at night, thinking about their, their bills in his inaugural address. Um, but then when he goes and does this energy stuff, he's like, oh, well, it's just, it's not that big of an increase. We'll, we'll transition to other jobs, even though I'm destroying all these other jobs in the, yeah, in the energy sector. It, it matters. It matters a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's gotta be one of the biggest, uh, blind spots of anybody, <clears throat> anybody has had in a long time when they talk about, well, we'll give you another job in uh, solar, uh, solar energy, uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, when? Yeah. yeah. Well, here's the problem. Yeah. That, yeah, but yeah, we, we we got a quick break, but before we go, the problem with that argument of solar panels, a good portion of those, the, if I'm not mistaken, and Adam on the other side of the break, you, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but aren't the majority of solar panels and wind turbines manufactured overseas in China? China. So hold on. Yeah. So hold on to that question there, and we'll be right. Right back here. This is Tom Donaldson of Donaldson Files and the Bachelor News Radio Network. Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. That's right. And here in the state of Iowa, you can actually stay up to go to your favorite sports bar and restaurant until midnight. <laughs> because we actually follow the science on lockdown. Well, but then again, well, I maybe think, it's because... I, well, God bless go Iowa. Yeah. Well, like I said, the Iowa unemployment number is 3.1%. Uh, we're like number three in the lowest unemployment. Um, now we have a, and our death totals is under uh, Andrew, the granny killer, Kumo. So not only do we have low unemployment, but we've managed to keep our death total per capita underneath the uh, granny killer himself. So what can I say? Top that. All right. Okay. Now the question, what was the question I was asking there? <laughs> it was about Chinese solar panels. Yeah, so, yeah, Chinese. I mean, here's the thing: is it true that a good portion of solar panels and the wooden turbines are actually manufactured in China? Not only is that true, but the ones that are made here, the materials that make them up, 
come from China. <laughs> so uh, the United States uh, imports 80% of uh, what are called rare earth minerals from China. And rare earth metals are those metals that kind of go into making up the inner components of solar panels, wind turbines, and the batteries that go along with them, lithium, uh, silicon, and, and things like that. Hmm. And so, um, you know, uh, China supplies 80% of that to the United States. So even if the things are made here, it's coming from materials in China. And China is slowly gaining a world monopoly on these minerals. They're primed to make you know, billions, if not trillions, as Biden and the rest of uh, these world leaders force us into more solar and wind power. So if so we follow means, the logic, if we follow the logic, that means that when Biden uh, offers people that are getting displaced by uh, from uh, their uh, uh, jobs in the energy industry, uh, that they're going to get jobs in the solar industry. It means they have to move to China to do it, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I wonder if it and I guarantee you, and I'm not sure. And, and I guarantee you, you're not going to be making union wages in China. You might as well be a greeter at Walmart. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, I mean, that is just so yeah. absurd. Yeah. Okay, let me put it this. Give me your view, Adam, the cost to us as a country with the Keystone Pipeline, uh, the decision dealing with the Keystone Pipeline. You know, right. If somebody said to you, what's, what's the cost? What's going to cost us in the end? What's the results? Go ahead. So I'll throw out a couple numbers here. Um, the company that uh, was in charge of Keystone, TC Energy, immediately canceling 11,000 jobs. That's $2.2 billion in lost wages for those workers. Um, five indigenous Native American tribes were also supposed to have about an $800 million ownership stake in that. That's canceled now. Um, you know, the project was $8 billion, supposed to deliver about almost – uh, a billion barrels of oil per day uh, to process, um, not including all the union jobs that were going to be hired for supporting the pipeline over the years uh, and things like that. So it's tough to put an exact price tag to the, you know, what that's going to cost each individual American, but American, but the Keystone pipeline canceling and all these other oil moves and things like that um, is absolutely going to be felt in the American economy. And it's over the years, it's probably going to be excess of, you know, tens of billions of dollars hurt in gross domestic product. Hmm. Well, they, they actually produce uh, some billions of dollars in, in income to the government uh, from, from the lease, from these leases that he's canceling. Right. Yeah, so, you're absolutely right on that. Yes. Uh, I'm just out of curiosity. How did the Canadians take this? <laughs> <laughs> they haven't taken it very well. Um, yeah, the premier of Alberta, uh, Jason Kenney, uh, just ripped into the Biden administration in a, in a publicized speech. He's called it a gut punch, to quote him, and he's hinting at legal action. Right now he's pushing Justin Trudeau to kind of negotiate something because this is one of the few sane policies that, their liberal prime minister, Justin Trudeau, actually supported. 
Um, and, uh, you know, but yeah, Jason Kenney has, has said that, you know, if all of that fails, he's hinted at legal action, whether that will actually hold up in a, in a court, I'm not sure, but, um, to part of my French, but they're pissed to say the least. I thought, yeah. I thought that they actually had, um, or that they had already filed a suit. Um, I haven't seen that if they have, I mean, there's so many things breaking every day with this. I know that yeah. the Western energy Alliance, uh, has sued the Biden administration to, uh, stop his ban, his moratorium on new oil and gas leases in the United States. Um, and it's possible they filed, uh, in Canada as well. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they already did, but, um, yeah. And also Mexico is worried about it too. Yeah, but I you mean, know what? Um, yeah, go ahead, Tom. I was just say, you can always get a job in China making solar panels. Yep. <laughs> You're going to have well, to John, get your graduate degree yeah. in Mandarin. Yeah. Well, John Kerry at the uh, press conference today, you know, they, they asked him specifically about this, and they told him, oh, uh, uh, you know, they can make the solar panels. And so, you know, CPAC, we put some posts up saying, you know, Marie Antoinette, his Marie Antoinette moment, you know, instead of let them eat cake, it's let them make solar panels. Yeah. <laughs> In China. <laughs> well, In China, yeah, right. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to add my uh, two cents here uh, to your earlier question, uh, Tom. And I think you've heard me say this before. I think that our, <clears throat> our major uh, advantage and our major asset in this uh, uh, fight to maintain a, uh, tri- the Trump uh, legacy is the American culture. The American Americans want to be. They we have freedom as personal freedom is just part of our DNA, and when you start imposing on too much on America's freedom. They start getting mad about it, and I think that is the main thing that we've got to we that we're going to have to be, to be that we're depending on to uh, pull us out of this uh, morass that we're in now. Mm-hmm. Well, that yeah, I mean here's the thing. I mean, and even if you take it this way, a pipeline is. And correct me if I'm wrong, Adam, and please follow up on the science on this, but. My impression is putting, you know, gas and oil through a pipeline is a help, is a lot safer than sticking it on a train or drive you know, on a oh, yeah. train or a truck. What's, you know, what's the, you know, and isn't it true that you actually end up increasing CO2 emission just from that fact alone? Did I get the science right? Yeah, you're spot on. I mean, the Manhattan Institute did a whole study. Uh, just a, a couple of years ago about how the majority of oil spills actually occur on road and rail. So, you know, when they're transported by truck or transported by train, um, you know, if you want to be environmentally friendly, then building a pipeline is the best thing that you could do. Um, you know, of course, there's the CO2 emissions from all that transport, um, you know, that has to be renewed every single time. Uh, but not only that, but Obama's EPA did kind of a, a climate impact assessment of the Keys pipeline and found that the, the climate impact was practically undetectable. And if Obama's EPA is saying that, then, you know, it must be, uh, you know, practically zero uh, in terms of, you know, even if you believe that humans can have an impact. 
on the climate. So they're ignoring their own yeah. studies uh, by canceling this. And you're spot on that, you know, pipelines are the safest way to move energy and oil. So basically, uh, they're not, yeah, so they're actually not following. So that means we can say to Joe Biden, you're not following the science. <laughs> there you works. go. <laughs> he might even be a science denier. I don't know. God forbid. He might be, yeah, a science denier, though. Of course, there's another uh, part of the puzzle that, you know, you know I get, I'm going to, and this will get me into the second part here. The first, the second part. The first part is, guess who has a big investment in trains that carries oil? I'll give you a hint. He's a Democrat who lives in Omaha. Big investor. Am I on the Warren spot Buffett. here? I know that. Uh, yeah, Warren Buffett's got yeah. some investments there. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. But here's the. Now I'm going to get back to the the alternative side of the equation, which. We're being told that it's going to be the future. And Warren Buffett told his stockholders, hey, we love wind and solar. Because he's got investment, including in Iowa, in tons of of wind technology. And it funds a lot of wind through their investment. And he basically told these group of stockholders, I was there. I I couldn't believe what I was listening to. Well, we love wind because it's great for the environment, and besides, we can make money because the government pays us through subsidies to do it. Yeah, he all but mm-hmm. he all but admit it. All but admit it. Sub, you know, without subsidies, we, we wouldn't be making money. We could not make money off the wind that we've been investing in. And that, yeah. so Adam, kind of talk about the science and the economic data behind wind and solar the practicality of it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, you've got a lot of uh, kind of suspect reports coming out now that, oh, solar and wind, you know, they're providing more energy than ever before and everything like that. And, you know, they're outperforming fossil fuels, but um, it doesn't take into account any of the ridiculous government uh, subsidies that are paid into these things. Um, You know, there used to be a, kind of uh, the old adage that, uh, oh, fossil fuels, they receive even more subsidies than wind and solar. And, you know, that is flat out wrong. You know, wind and solar receive far more subsidies um, from the states, from the federal government, from tax breaks, all of it. And, you know, in terms of actually being able to provide the power that we need, the thing is, if you want to go all in on wind and solar, you actually need more nuclear natural gas, and even coal, because not everywhere in the United States is very sunny, and not everywhere in the United States is very windy. And so what are you going to do when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow, and you don't have batteries right now that can store the amount of power you need to handle peak demand in the evening? You're going to get brownouts and you're going to get blackouts, or you're going to have to rely more on fossil fuel backup, which if you're concerned about CO2 emissions, is actually going to increase CO2 emissions. So you're doing all of this to just, in the long run, probably increase CO2 emissions, destroy millions of jobs, and increase prices on, on every American. It's just madness. The other thing I can't understand is when they talk about, they talk about electric uh, cars and trucks, and they're run by batteries, and where do they think the, the, the energy for the battery comes from? 
I mean, do they think that that comes out of the sky or what? <laughs> it's, yeah. it's it. It comes out of the electrical plant, and so yeah. all your, yeah. you know, you're just you're you're you maybe you're changing the uh, the exhaust a little bit, but you sure as heck you're not changing. You're not you're saving uh, uh, saving uh, energy. You've got you've got. You've got the energy that you're actually it's costing you more energy. Yeah, I'll tell you what, Adam. I want you I want you to kind of make a comment on what Dr. Larry is, is saying here in just a couple of minutes. Here, this is Tom Donaldson with Dr. Larry, and this is the Resistance Hour with Dr. Larry and Tom. Adam Hauser from CFAC is our special guest, and uh, here on the Bachelor Donald, uh, yeah, on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Yeah, I, I was about, I was about right to one. say. <laughs> Tune in to You and the Law with Chief Virgil Green and Chief Keith Humphrey. The show focuses on law enforcement and their relationship with the black community while letting you know your legal rights as a citizen when confronted by the police. Listen live every Tuesday night from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com and the podcast every Monday through Sunday at 4 a.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. Yeah, so we're back here on the Donaldson Files and the Bachelor News Radio Network. Okay, basically, the you know the electric car, you need energy to recharge it. Where does that come from, Adam? <laughs> uh, primarily, that comes from coal. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's a funny thing, you know. I was doing a survey in Colorado uh, college campuses, Colorado State. University in particular. Uh, and we were asking them if they supported the continued use of kind of clean coal. You know, we we're using like uh, these scrubbers on the smokestacks. Um, and one student, you know, said proudly declared to me, oh, no, I, I wouldn't support that. You know, I, I drive an electric car. Showing yeah. that he has no idea <laughs> where the electricity for his electric car comes from. And, you know, we're, we're slowly, coal in our power generation is slowly going down, um, you know, thanks in part to Obama just absolutely destroying the industry with regulations. Um, but the vast majority is still fossil fuels. Um, you know, renewable power, so-called renewable power is not even close. And um, so, you know, uh, Dr. Larry here is, is absolutely right that there is sort of an energy illiteracy so to speak, of where that power for your MacBook, your iPhone, your Tesla actually comes from. Yeah. I mean, it's so absurd. Yeah, it is. But here's the other thing about electric car. I mean, it's not that I'm opposed to electric car, but this is a 100-year technology. This is nothing new. We had electric cars and combustible engines were competing at the turn of the 20th century. And my steam, biggest complaint is steam. Yeah. yeah. You're talking about yeah. the steam, it, steam engines. No, no, I'm talking about electric. They were electric cars. Really? They were cars built. Yeah. They, you know, depending upon electricity, on electric. Uh, yeah. And they were competing with the combustible engine, and other, uh, and the steam. Yeah. You know. So here's the thing. You know, this is what I hate about. Again, I want both of your opinions on this. 
You know, the only thing I have against an electric car, besides the fact that uh, it's priced a little bit higher than what I would want to pay for my combustible engine, is you got to wait until two or three hours, depending on the size of the battery, 12 hours to recharge. And now they're talking about there's a new, they're thinking they can get that down to 10 minutes. And I'm thinking to myself, I can fill my Saturn up in less than 60 seconds and be on the road. What's the advantage of having an electric car that you that if possibly best case scenario in the upcoming future takes ten minutes to to recharge and it's taking you a couple of hours to recharge? Can somebody explain that to me? Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, um anybody. Yeah, I don't I don't know if Doc Larry has anything, but you know, quickly I'll say that um you know, really what they're selling is uh, they're selling virtue signaling. You know, you get to feel good about, um, you know, uh, saving the planet. Um, and uh, it was, you know, kind of what you were uh, talking about before there is that um, with the electric cars and the 10-minute charging time, it is that, that is a very, very optimistic projection, you know, and uh, Biden is planning to try to transition the entire federal fleet of vehicles, 650,000 or more vehicles to all electric uh, vehicles, no timetable given. Um, And while that alone will cost like $20 billion, uh, that doesn't include building all the extra infrastructure for charging stations that don't exist yet. So, um, you know, we're taking the government efficiency, quote unquote, of our tax dollars and then throwing an extra 30 minutes to an hour to two hours of charging time on top of that. Um, I didn't think the government could get any more inefficient, but it looks like it's about to. Oh, never, never underestimate that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. Let's now, let me answer this question. Let's just say theoretically, uh, we're going to put maybe 50% of energy across the United States is going to be wind. How much land would we need to do that? It's a good question. And uh, we've got, so Paul Dreesen is one of our senior policy analysts. He did uh, kind of an in-depth study of the, the green new deal, which calls for a hundred percent, you know, uh, wind or solar. Um, he said, if you want to do full wind, um, it would take over 500,000 square miles to power the entire United States, covering it with wind turbines. Now, to put that in a context you can understand, that is the combined space of California, Nevada, Oregon, Arizona, and much of West Virginia. Now, if you're going to do half for wind turbines, I guess it's 250,000 square miles. So uh, only California, Nevada, and Oregon. (laughs) Half (laughs) Half the West Coast is covered in wind turbines. Now, solar panels don't need quite as much land, but they still need a whole lot. If, you, uh, if the other half is in solar panels, well, that's probably going to require about half the size of New York State or more. So imagine, you know, the entire state of California, Nevada, and half of New York covered in wind turbines and solar panels. Talk about uh, scenic, right? Yeah, well, that's what I say. That's the whole thing. Um, yeah, have a wind turbine in your backyard. Well, we don't have anything to worry about because uh, our our friend, the former Secretary of State, has been proclaimed by the current president 
as uh, knowing more about this subject than anybody in the anybody in uh, alive. So I guess we're in good hands, wouldn't you say? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, exactly. He's uh, um, well. He's already been on record saying that even if all the industrialized nations, you know, cease putting out CO two, it's still not going to be enough. That's what he said at one of these UN summits. Um, and so there's no satisfying, you know, this agenda. Uh, they're not going to be satisfied at crippling the West developed nations. They're, then they're going to go for the underdeveloped people. And you know, it's, it's heartbreaking to think that these nations who are just so close to breaking out into, you know, becoming a developed nation and bringing all their citizens out of poverty and out of hunger and into electricity are, fi- are now going to be saddled with, um, you know, essentially bribes from the U.N. to keep their leaders from powering their nation. Uh, all in the name of a, a climate agenda. It's it's heartbreaking to me, and it is absurd that anyone would give them the time of day. Yeah, and they just they just listen to these facts. And that's what we're trying to do: expose it. But it is heartbreaking to me. Well, let me ask you a question: Have has Paul Dreesen or you or others with CPAC estimated that if we did a you know something of that nature, how many people would die of starvation? Has anybody ever done that calculation? You know, I don't have a number like that offhand. Um, it's possible they would have that they have, but I'm not aware of it um, at the front of my mind. Um, I think that right now we've been so focused on trying to convince people that, you know, hey, it's going to hit you in the pocketbook. It's going to hurt your environment. Don't vote for it. But now as people keep voting for it, you know, you start to have to wonder, do we need to come up with some of these numbers of, you know, the terrible human toll that it's going to take on people? It, it might be time yeah. for that to start getting those numbers together. Yeah. I'm just curious. Cause I, I'm just curious. Cause I, you know, Alex Epstein, uh, in one of his books, he talks about what happened in Africa where they literally ran out of energy in the middle mm-hmm. of a surgery and somebody and, a, and the, and the person died on the table. Because they had nothing, yeah. they couldn't keep it going. And, and I have to be asking myself, you know, what is the price? Yeah, you know, what is because there's got to be a price where you're basically, you know, trying to put a, the world back to the twenty, the early twentieth, the late nineteenth century technology. You know, when we barely could yeah. support one billion people then, what's going to be the price mm. here? Oh, I, if somebody's ever done this study, I would love to see it. Or you know, and you guys are the guys to do it. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. No, and I think it's it's time for that. You know, I think you're absolutely right. It's uh, it's unfortunate that it is, but I I think it's time. You yeah. know, people, it's not all fun and games anymore. You know, people are going to start getting hurt. Yeah. That that really is. Tragic as you describe it. Yeah. Well, I think the thing is the human cost, because when I look at, I mean, it's you know when I look at all of this and I keep thinking to myself, you know, yeah, you know, the human cost is there. I mean, just imagine what it was like. Let me put it this way: uh, my dad once told me that you know he didn't have running water. He lived on a farm in Missouri. This is in the 1920s. He didn't have running water until they moved into town, into Gallatin, Missouri, when his dad uh, 
went from being a farmer, decided to go ahead and try to set up a car dealership. Unfortunately, 1929 was the the year that the Depression began. It didn't take long. They were back on the farm and no running water. And I'm thinking to myself, Mm. could you imagine living your life without running water? Yeah. Yeah, I certainly couldn't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, think about. It. I mean, like I say, unless you want to. I mean, it's you know, people don't realize at the you know what the nineteenth and early twentieth, even the nineteenth early twentieth century, the technology that was there. I mean, we were feeding what one person for every you know five. A farmer was feeding around the world five people for every one farmer. Today it's like what sixty, seventy, a hundred. I, I don't know if you have those numbers on top of your head. You know, what a farmer feeds I do, today. Yeah, I, I don't, but our ability to feed people on less land with less water for less resources going in um, has exponentially soared. You know, kind of going back to what I said with Thomas Malthus uh, earlier on, that philosopher saying that we're all going to starve to death because there's too many people. Um, you know, I make the argument that humans are, you know, what we call the master resource, you know, is that they um, – more humans you have, you're going to have more potential for innovation and for, um, you know, breakthrough technologies and the things like that. So, um, you know, we've been called to kind of fill the earth and subdue it and be a steward. Yes. But, you know, we got to keep moving forward. And what these, what the Biden moves show, what these radical environmentalists show is they see humans as an inherent problem. And, you know, the more humans they are, the more things we're doing, the more things we're advancing. Um, that's all a problem. And, uh, you know, we kind of lined this out in our film as well, the documentary did, where it is religion. Um, but also there's some people who, you know, think that some of these consequences that we're talking about of people losing their jobs, of people, uh, you know, possibly uh, being negatively impacted in this way, not being able to have as many kids, you know, limiting the amount of people on the earth. Those are all not necessarily bad things because it's increasing people's dependency on government. And it's limiting freedom and it's limiting the amount of people on the earth. And so these are some pretty, you know, messed up ideas to have, but that's kind of the undercurrent of these things. It doesn't get talked about, but it's very real. And you can sense it when you go to these conferences. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Dr. Larry, your thoughts. Well, I was just thinking of what I, <clears throat> I have uh, uh, been writing about for the last year or so. And that is, my uh my uh thesis that we have an unholy uh, alliance that goes it starts <clears throat> at the at the at the grassroots part of it is really all the uh, the the 1% of our population that owns 80% of our assets and uh, that are looking uh some of them are they're all looking to have more of a say in the American uh, <clears throat> in the American uh, way of the American uh, public, but some of them are, are more uh, pernicious than others, and uh, uh, the, the the most aggressive and the most uh, <clears throat> power hungry group of those billionaires is in the uh, high-tech industry as we've seen recently and I really I really think that all of this um, these uh, causes the cause of 
climate change, the cause even of the of the uh, pandemic, are basically uh, means by they were they were, they were accepted and manipulated for uh, the purpose of getting more power to uh, in the hands of ultimately of these people who are now allied with the Democrat Party, the uh, public uh, media, as well as uh, big business, and particularly uh, the big uh, high-tech business, which is where most of these new billionaires really are. And, and uh, if, you, if you look at it from that point of view, this whole thing gets uh, considerably more cynical. Uh, that uh, we don't have we don't have people that are seriously concerned with trying to get uh, more people uh, equality and and get rid of racism and do all these things that they talk about. What they're really worried about is trying to get more power so that uh, they can call the shots. And uh, because once you've got enough money, you know how much how much money does it take to uh to uh buy your clothes or there's only so many clothes a person can buy can wear and <laughs> yeah. the same way with with also with other toys like uh boats and uh cars and yeah. and tele- airplanes so what is there what what is what else is there well what else there is is power is it's the power yeah. to uh manipulate people yeah and that yeah. is oh, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. what a lot of these people want. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to stop it. we got about three minutes left. So there's two quick questions. One question, then. Uh, then I want Adam to let you have a chance to have people you know, follow you on CPAC. But the first question I have, Marshall Reno has got a lot of wanted posters about him. And I just want to know, have you ever gotten your own wanted poster? No, not yet, but I'm working on it. Give me a couple of years, and maybe I'll get to okay. Mark's level. He's uh, <laughs> not yet. <laughs> okay, go ahead and tell everybody by CFAC, uh, you know, where they can contact you and follow you and others. Absolutely. So uh, you can go to cfact.org, that's C-F-A-C-T dot O-R-G. We publish uh, daily updates and kind of happenings on what's going on in the energy and environmental and technology sectors. You can also check out our documentary, Climate Hustle 2, at uh, climatehustle2.com. Uh, and you can check out there as long as our first documentary. Uh, and as well as climatedepot.com, that's where you'll find all of Mark Morano's stuff. Um, and maybe some reportings back on whether he's finally been uh, arrested or not. But uh, that's where you can follow yeah. us on all the important things. <laughs> yeah. Okay, one quick question, um, and then because I would love to have both you you and Mark come back on the show because now we have climate justice. So do you have anything mm. on your CFAC uh, site that deals with, quote, unquote, climate justice, what it means, what it and what it entails. Do you have that information available? We do, um, but I can guarantee you that there's going to be even more in the coming weeks because Gina McCarthy, uh, in a recent interview, who's now climate advisor to the White House, just said that's going to be one of their main focus points. So we absolutely do, and we'll have even more. Uh, just stay tuned. Okay. 
All right, sounds good because I'd love to have you come back on the show to kind of follow up uh, on that and other issues because energy does also have an impact on those at the lower end, the lower end, and basically the bride plan is not going to be all that nice and helpful. So I'll tell you what, Dr. Larry, why don't you take us out of here and say goodnight. I'll say goodnight, and I'll let you end the show. Well, we want to say thanks to uh, Adam Hauser for coming on tonight. Uh, It's been very informative, and uh, we are now at the end of our time, so we are going to say God bless America, and good night, and God bless America.